Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey everybody, welcome to Awaken. My name is Micah, one of the pastors here, and really glad that you're with us. Today, if you did not know, is July the 11th. It is the golden birthday of the church you call Awaken. July 11th, 2010, about 35 people gathered in a park, thought to themselves, what kind of church do we want to make? What kind of church would we build, would we create if we had the chance to do it? And guess what? This is what they made. So I'm really glad you're here. And I'm really, quite frankly, I'm, I'm honored to be called one of the pastors here. I want to begin this morning with Psalm 8. It is a psalm about creation, and uh, we're going to sing a song about creation, um, speaking about the works of God as good. So as we begin, let me invite you to receive and hear, listen uh, to this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is humanity that you are mindful of them? The son of man that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swims the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. God, as we think about these words from the psalmist and this declaration that you have given us a charge as humans to be careful of the place, the things, the animals, the beings that are around us. God, we begin with confession saying that we have not done the best of jobs at times. And we hear this psalm and sing this song with faith, um, being reminded again of the invitation that you give us to be stewards of the creation that you've placed us in, to be the ones who look out for and care for, protect, um, advocate for those that don't have voices. So for our part, wherever we find ourselves today, would you, Holy Spirit, move in us, guide us, direct us, Invite us again to be your partners in creation. We pray in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's sing.
before we move on, we're going to sing the song of blessing over our kids. So grab your little people, bring them close. Let's sing the song over them. friends, welcome back to Lost in Translation. Uh, this is a summer series that we've done many times. It's sort of our version of Stump the Pastor. Uh, in some ways, we find the most difficult, the most odd, obscure, obtuse, sometimes offensive, uh, hard to understand or often misunderstood passages in the Bible, and we just lean into them. Um, looking for clarity, for insight, uh, even possibly a fresh word from the Lord from these passages, which maybe sometimes at first blush doesn't seem possible. But and we do this because, well, we love the Bible. We like the Bible. Um, I, I, we, we value it uh, greatly. And um, I believe, we believe, it has something to say right here and right now in t- 2021. So um, today we're looking at a passage called the Great Commission. Now, if you were in the room, I would poll the audience here. This would be an all-play question, and I would say something to the effect of, um, how many of you know where, uh, what this passage is and where it is in the Bible? And we'd see how many hands were raised and how many weren't. Um, and according to a survey done in 2019, not many of you know um, where this passage is located in the Bible, or really what it's connected to. Um, like only 17% of, of church-going folks were familiar with the phrase and its meaning or where it's found in the Bible. So, um, I will save the suspense and tell you, it's in Matthew chapter 28. It is the last thing in Matthew's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And I'll begin reading in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28 also known as the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely some the old school, and lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. Pray with me. God, this morning as we take a look at this passage, which may be familiar familiar to some, but not so familiar to others, uh, as always, it's my hope and prayer that um, by your Holy Spirit and uh, her presence near us and among us and with us, that you might speak in a way that we are challenged um, to move toward you and more, uh, more towards what we were intended for. 
as humans. So it's to this end I pray by, uh, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen and amen. <clears throat> so um, the Great Commission, friends, uh, we're talking about missionaries. We're talking about Christian missionary, the Christian Missionary Project. And of course, if you know the story of the Bible, you could argue that Paul was the first Christian missionary, right? Paul the Apostle was a Jew, is saved on the road to Damascus, converted, follows this Jesus, and then becomes the first person to kind of go out into the known world and tell people about this Jesus and his message about his death and his resurrection. Um, in the early centuries of the church, so a little bit of history here, in the earliest centuries of the church, um, up to the first millennia, you know, they have, there are records of people going out into the world, telling people about this Jesus. In 1054, there's a schism between the East and the West. And more in the Catholic tradition than the Eastern tradition, as far as I understand, um, you get, um, you know, folks being sent out into the world, um, some of the earliest Catholic orders, um, I mean, St. Patrick, right, was sent out into the world as a missionary to nearby regions. Um, and despite the fact that there were missionaries really all throughout Christian history, the idea or this phrase of the Great Commission isn't actually, it doesn't show up until the uh, like early 1700s or 17th century, excuse me. Um, and some scholars would argue that it's, it was coined by this baron named Justinian or Justinian von Wells, who was a Lutheran, German Lutheran, I, I'm assuming. I mean, most, most Lutherans were German back then. But he argued that the words of Matthew 28 were for all Christians and not just Jesus' closest disciples, that everyone was invited to spread the gospel as it were. And so at that point, you get into what may be more familiar territory for us, for if you grew up in the evangelical church. Um, and that is about two centuries later, you have a guy named Hudson Taylor, who founds the, I think it's, what was it called? The Great, the China Inland Mission. And uh, uh, was believed to use the Great Commission, Matthew 28, as sort of the foundation for, or the justification for Christian mission to Asia. Um, Catholics, not to be left out of the fray, um, in the 14, 15, 1600s are sending many of their explorers by uh, edict of the queen. If you remember Christopher Columbus, his mission um, was financed by Queen Isabella. And in part, it was to spread Christianity to the world. Uh, in modern day, evangelicals have taken up this idea of the Great Commission. And we love the Great Commission. It is one of our favorite passages among evangelicals. Um, and it has empowered sending um, organizations, uh, churches, and lots of people being sent out into the world as missionaries, including, ironically, to South America, where all the Catholics um, ended up, uh, many of the Catholics ended up. Um, some of you may even remember stories about this. One famous one is a guy named Jim Elliott. Uh, this is in the 50s, and um, Jim Elliott was one of five men who were murdered um, by, uh, it was called Operation Alka. And um, actually, not until I began studying for this sermon did I realize that these were not the Alka Indians. They were um, indigenous uh, Wadani people of Ecuador, and Alka is actually like a word translated by us, um, which meant savages. So even up to recently, many people, and myself included, would know this story as the Alka Indians, which is actually just a translation of... a indigenous word that means savage, which is terrible, right? Um, but these five men were, were killed in 1956, and it became national news. Like Time Magazine ran a story on these men, and it fueled the fervor and the funding, uh, monetary donations, 
for Christian missionaries around the world. And while the goal and intent of Christian missionary work was rooted in the Great Commission and maybe had good intentions, right, to spread the gospel and the good news about Jesus in the world, the unintended effects of power, of colonialism, of whiteness, of um, economic gain often got mixed up in the, mi- in the middle of that story uh, and connected to these efforts around the world. Lots of people have studied this. Two examples, one uh, guy named Edward Castillo wrote a book called Californian Indian History, and he argues that one-third of um, California's native population, over 100,000 people, were killed due to Christian missionaries. Um, a guy wrote a thesis at Vanderbilt uh, on the Rwandan genocide and argues that it was Christian missionaries who helped harden the ethnic differences between Hutus and Tutsis that led to the genocide in Rwanda. So here's what I want to do today. I want to briefly say a couple of things that I think are really obvious about the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the world, bap- um, uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have taught you to obey. I, I want to say what I think is really obvious about that verse or those verses uh, as it relates to history and some of the things that have happened connected to this verse. And then I want to just study the passage. We're just going to study it, you know, it's four verses, it's pretty short. Hopefully, um, with, with, or, or I hope to offer maybe a, a fresh word, a new take on this passage. So that's what we're going to do. So um, first and foremost, I think we have to say that this verse has been the basis for some of the terrible things that have happened in history in, uh, in the name of Jesus. Um, when Jesus himself appears to be saying to his disciples or to his followers, go and make disciples, we can easily add to that by whatever means necessary, especially when power or economic gain get added to the, com- added to the, the equation. Go and make disciples. Jesus is telling us we need to go and make disciples. And so whatever, whatever the cost is, well, it's worth it if people are converting to Christianity, right? And I've talked about this before, but when you combine this, like this go and make disciples by any means necessary, with a sort of Gnostic view of the body and the soul, which is sort of this diversion or this bifurcation, which privileges the soul and denigrates the body, you combine that with go and make disciples with any, at any cost or, or any means necessary, you can see how some pretty insanely harmful things could be done in the name of saving souls. This is how Christians justified the enslavement of Africans in American history. Many thought that we were doing these savage people a favor by bringing them to America and saving them or presenting or um, getting them to convert to Christianity. This, is, uh, this was the justification for apartheid in South Africa. This is the justification for the colonization projects of Europe all around the world. That we were bringing Christianity to these pagan savage people. And so then what happens to their bodies, when you combine that with this Gnostic view of bodies and souls, what happens to their bodies is not of consequence, because if we can save their souls, then all is well. So I think first we have to be honest that there have been some terrible things done in the name of Jesus rooted in this verse, go and make disciples. Second, I think we can say for sure that Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is not an invitation nor a justification for the colonization of different people groups in the name of the gospel. It's not an invitation or justification for the erasing of 
uh, cultures and traditions among people groups. It, it, you know, anyone who doesn't, you know, square with our version of it or we consider abnormal, and by abnormal I mean not white, Christian, or European, then we can sort of um, invite to change by force, right? Uh, this is not that. In fact, one could argue that the whole, and we're not going to get into uh, the history of colonization, but in general, this project of colonization and the enslavement of indigenous peoples is antithetical to everything Jesus was about and the invitation that he gives his disciples on this mountain at the end of his life in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. If you take into account all the things Jesus has said thus far, it cannot be that, right? And yet it was, somehow. So I think we can say that out of the gate, it's obvious. I hope it's obvious at this point in, in history that it is not make disciples by whatever means necessary, nor is it uh, by force inviting people or coercing people to leave their cultures, their, their, even some of their beliefs, their norms, who they are as people in order to become Christian and our understanding of Christian, being white, European, and... So, then what does this verse mean? If for many of us, when we read, go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, Jesus saying this. When we read that, and it doesn't mean the things that it has often meant in history, then what does it mean? What would it look like to climb out of that box for us? So let's just look at the, the verses as they come. Let's start in verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16 says, To the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. Uh, if you follow the story of God in the scriptures, you don't have to go far to recognize that mountains play a very significant role. And this all-important word that Jesus is about to give, it's the end of his life, he's sort of given him the last few bits of information, take place on a mountain, which is no surprise for Matthew in his gospel. Matthew has already shown us the temptations of Jesus in the desert happening on a mountain. He's talked about the Sermon on the Mount, which is, of course, on a mount. The transfiguration of Jesus happened on a mountain. The final discourse of, with his disciples happens on the Mount of Olives. And now this parting scene, Moses and Elijah met with God on a mountain. They're seen meeting or talking uh, in this gospel with Jesus. And now Jesus invites his disciples to meet him on this mountain to be commissioned and sent out. So, in the course of human history, even other religions, the mountain is a transformative space. For whatever reason, it seems that humans look up when we think about the divine. And so anything that can get us closer to what is up is privileged and considered sacred by many. Even in the scriptures, you have this, lang this language in the Old Testament of lift your eyes as if God is up in some way, shape, and form. And so Jesus is about to speak these words, and Matthew is ringing the bell that this is an important moment. Something is about to be said that you're going to want to pay attention to. So a question for us. As we gather as the church, when you gather, when we gather in this space for word and sacrament, do you anticipate anything important to happen? Said differently, do you believe that you might receive 
something from God, that you may have an encounter with the living God? Is there any sort of anticipation that this space, this time, is sacred, that it is equivalent to a mountain in Scripture where something, may, something significant may be said or offered to you? Um, I've often had this experience when I'm out in nature where I'm going, 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 I'm always moving, and then when I sit down, it's as if nothing is happening out in nature. This has happened to me at Pachaman Terrace when I've gone up there. You sit down, you first get there, and it's like nothing is alive. We usually go in the winter too. So it's just like dead. But the longer I sit still, the more I realize what is alive out there. It's as if I have to train my eyes to see the things that are alive. And if I just keep going, 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 and I don't stop long enough, you don't see it. I've sat on my deck and on my, in my backyard before. And when you sit down, it's, just, it's like nothing is out there. Nothing is happening. But then the longer you sit still, the more you train yourself to see the things that are, all, that are alive all around you. The chickadees and the blue jays and the squirrels and the robins, the rabbits. Every now and again, a bluebird. Are you on the lookout When you come to this space weekly or as much as you are here, I want to invite you to consider this a sacred space, a sacred place where there there might be, uh, it might benefit you to have some anticipation of what God might say or do, almost as if you're tuning in your ears and your heart uh, and your eyes to see and hear and sense the spirit and the presence of God when we're here. Matthew marks this moment as it's about to be It's about to get good. It's going to be important on a mountain. Verse 17 goes on and it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We're 28 chapters into Matthew, friends. This is the last stop. Like, they have spent three and a half years with this guy, and yet still some of them doubted. And I love this about the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is one of the only books that tells the story of the losers. It's one of the only books that has space for the doubters and the skeptics and the hesitant people, for the Thomases and these folks. It's one of the only books that allows uh, its own to critique the leaders, right? What are the prophets if they're not critiquing the religious establishment? Those who the book is for. It's fascinating to me because no other sacred text does that. And yet, time and time again, we find in Scripture space, not even just space, but like an important role for those who hesitate. Three and a half years of being with Jesus, day in and day out. After his death and resurrection, and some of them worshiped, but some doubted. Some of your translations may say hesitated. My mom always used to tell me when driving, he who hesitates is lost. But I don't know that that actually fits for the spiritual life. Which is why I would say in the same spirit to those of you who have come to awaken, who maybe are a little hesitant. Maybe you have a few questions that remain unanswered. Maybe you have some doubts that you just can't shake. Maybe you're a little skeptical about jumping in headfirst all the way. Um, I would say to you, you know, the boundary waters, um, slow but sure entry into the water is, is okay here. Uh, if you've not been to the boundary waters, just imagine like a cold body of water. And so if, you, if you've ever done this before, Some people are crazy. They just jump straight in. I typically, surprisingly, to maybe some of you, I'm not that kind of guy. I I like to like slowly make my way in, you know, introducing um, subsequent parts of my body to the cold water. Some part 
some spots are more difficult than others, but slowly but surely, you, you introduce all of your extremities to the water, and then eventually, you go under, right? So maybe you're here, and you're just getting into the water of our community and this story of Jesus and Christianity. And if you want to take some time to do that, you are welcome to. No one is going to splash you with water if you don't want to be splashed. No one's going to sneak up behind you and push you in. No one's going to lead you to the drop-off that we all know is there, but you don't. Take your time. Ask your questions. Voice your doubts. Um, And I would say that the seat at the table is there, regardless of how long it takes you. Some of them worshipped, but some of them doubted. Verse 18 goes on and says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Looking back on Christian missionary history, I don't think it's uh, hard to, to see that it feels like power and authority has been assumed by some people that maybe it shouldn't have been assumed by. Do you know what I'm saying? Like as if... Christians or organizations or the church has assumed a role that it was never intended to assume. And it, and it operated as if it had power and authority to rule over where that is actually not the fact. Because as it relates to the power and authority that Jesus is speaking about, we would do well to, to remember that we do not possess any of it. But rather, that power resides in the office and the person of Christ, which we are neither. Matthew reports and Jesus claims that all authority and power has been given to him. And as far as I can tell, reading the scriptures, I've been doing this for a while, and I haven't come across the passage where Jesus says he relinquishes all of that to us as humans. Now, you could argue that we uh, maybe say some things on his behalf and we operate as ambassadors, Paul calls us, but even an ambassador of the U.S. government to a foreign, uh, foreign government isn't given the power of the presidency. No, the power of the presidency resides in the Oval Office and in the person of the president. The ambassador can say some things on behalf of the president when the president okays that, but the power is not given to the ambassadors. So I think it's important and it would be helpful for us to remember, Jesus has not relinquished his power and authority that he gained in and through the death and resurrection to you or me or the church. It's also important to remember how Jesus secured this power because we think of power in one way and yet the securing of the power and authority that Jesus claims to have in scripture comes at a very odd way or in a very odd way. Remember the devil, he tempts the Satan, he tempts Jesus out in the, uh, in the desert on a mountain and says all the power and authority could be yours if you just bow a knee to me, right? Which would lead to a tyranny that, that would be, you know, terribly, terrible to imagine. N.T. Wright says, Jesus' authority as the risen one, by contrast, is the authority of the one who has defeated tyranny itself, the ultimate tyranny of death, and his is the authority under which life, God's new life, can begin to flourish. Christ's accomplishment and subsequent power and authority that is gained from it is one secured by sacrificial love. Laying down his life for his enemy, a love that seeks to uphold and maintain every unique image bearer of God. Instead of extinguishing or subjugating or ruling them, a love and power that is marked by the opposite of what many have experienced as a result of the Christian missionary movement in the world. Now, the sticky wicket 
that the Great Commission puts us right in the middle of is this bizarre and wild claim that God is bringing God's power and authority and rule over death and corruption and greed and evil in and through the church. So insofar as we are ambassadors for that, that kingdom reality is, comes to bear or, or come, uh, is brought to the world that we live in. But when we claim the power and authority for ourselves, for our cultural norms or our ethnic identities or our sexual orientations or our belief about whatever is normal, and we exercise the power as if it's ours, then what was good news for all becomes good news for some. I'm going to say that again. When we operate as if the power is ours, and we assume that what is normal and natural to us is normal and natural to everybody else, then what is good news for everybody becomes only good news for some. The passage closes in verses 19 and 20 where Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So what does make disciples even mean? The word in Greek is methetes, and it means pupil or a learner. Um, I want to suggest that this does not mean to us what it meant to the people who heard it first. That may be obvious to some. Um, it did not mean to the disciples who were standing on a mountain with Jesus, get people to pray prayers of salvation and cross imaginary lines of faith. I don't think that's what it meant. Um, it didn't mean force people to your way of life, your cultural norms, your perspective or values. It, it, it didn't mean asking people to repent from who they are. Discipleship was always and is always an invitation to follow and a willing response to follow, to learn the way of the master. See, I think it's helpful to think about the discipleship-making process as a consensual relationship. It takes two willing parties to disciple, to be an apprentice, or to, to be the, uh, uh, what would that be, the master and the apprentice. It takes two parties. It takes trust and fidelity and relationship. It takes maturity and knowledge on the part of the teacher and humility and desire on the part of the learner. Discipleship is life on life over time. It's the rubbing of elbows. It's the rubbing of shoulders. It's the, the touching of lives over time. There's this great story about Stradivarius, the violin maker, like 1700s, and evidently he never wrote anything down. Yet his violins are like sought after by world-renowned violin players because the Stradivarius is the pinnacle of the violin, and yet there's no record of how he made them or what the dimensions were. As the story goes, Stradivarius would just weigh the wood and he would feel it and he would touch it and he would smell it and like hit it to hear its resonance and then he would say, no, it's not that. And he would take another piece of wood and evidently that's like the most important part of making a violin is finding tone wood, the one that's going to sing. And so he would do this all by feel and by touch and by sound. And there was always an apprentice like at his elbow. And he would say, you know, feel this, touch that. It's not that. And over and over and over. And then when he found it, he'd be like, there it is. That's it. That's what it sounds like. That's what it feels like. That's so learn to do what I do by feeling in your body, your mind, and your soul the rhythms of making a violin or the rhythms of faith. See what I see, feel what I feel, touch what I touch, taste what I taste. Whatever Jesus is inviting us to on the top of this mountain, 
Making disciples of all nations must be rooted in consent, not conquest. If you hear nothing I say today, remember that. Whatever Jesus is inviting the church to, it must be rooted in consent, trust, reciprocity, not conquest or domination or force, or even coercion, or even guilt. I think some this feed, uh, you know how Facebook tells you things that happened years ago. There was this quote that I was reminded of by Ben Rosenbush, one of our, fir- our first worship leader, and he said something to the effect of guilt might motivate the heart for a time, but it cannot capture it for a lifetime. Only love can do that. So your job, my job, as people of faith, if we're going to take Jesus seriously and this make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, if we're going to like, think about doing that, then what is our job? And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Your job, my job, the church's job is simple and it is to demonstrate and announce. To demonstrate the love of God that you have experienced firsthand, personally, with your own life. Do that. Demonstrate it by the way you live your life, the way you do business, the way you parent your children, the way you show up at the office, the way you vote at election season, the, the way you engage with your family members who disagree. Demonstrate the love of God that you have experienced personally. Demonstrate the values of the kingdom that Jesus teaches us to care about. And then when, because this is how it works, when someone asks you about the peculiar life that you live, announce. Give word to the demonstration that you have offered by drawing attention to the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And then leave it up to the Spirit. You are a partner with the Spirit of God in the world. The Spirit is leading this dance. You and I are not. The church is not. We're not responsible for it. The Spirit of God is. So we can say, Spirit, it's up to you. However you want to lead and move, I'll follow, but we don't have to take responsibility nor feel pressure that something is or is not happening. Your job, my job. Demonstrate and announce. Say yes to the work of the Spirit. So if you want to take Jesus seriously, go and make disciples. I can assure you that it does not mean you have permission to leverage and use whatever power or privilege or position you have to get people to do what you want or believe what you want them to believe. Rather... It requires life on life, trust, reciprocity, maturity. So, are you ready to hear a word, of, word from the Lord today? Are you anticipating God might offer you something in this moment? For those that maybe are hesitant, who maybe have questions yet, somehow, in this story, there is always space for you. And I hope that that is always true at Awaken, as long as I'm here. Jesus is still the one with the power and the authority because Jesus claimed that through sacrificial love and beating death itself. So let's just let Jesus keep that. And now invites you and I to demonstrate the love of God that we've experienced firsthand with our own lives and to announce and give word, to partner with God in the work that God is up to in the world by rubbing shoulders, by living with people close enough to them that they can see the peculiar life that you lead. So what does it mean to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Jesus would be okay if we said, how about we just focus on our neighborhood, our family, those closest to us. Let's be faithful in the little things first. Let's live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that are a sweet aroma, as Paul says, to those who are around us instead of an ugly stench. So that when people see you and me in the lives that we live as the church, there's a curiosity around what is it about those people? And I have a sneaky suspicion that if we keep leaning into that, trusting that the Spirit of God is at work, that there will be the opportunity to rub shoulders with someone, to to have someone sit at your elbow, which requires maturity and patience, longevity, to say, follow me as I follow Christ. That is the heart and soul of what it means to make disciples, in my opinion. And I invite you to that work as the church. Pray with me. God, as we take a few moments today, this morning, to consider what it means, what you meant when you said, go and make disciples. Uh, We first repent of the ways that this has gone sideways in the world, in history, where people bearing your name through power or position or privilege, coerced or forced people to believe what they wanted them to believe or to live culturally in ways that they deemed appropriate. So God, all of that we repent of. And we trust that your spirit is still at work in the world, still wanting, still desiring, still longing for people to know your name, to know who you are, Jesus, to know the kind of forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion and justice and hope and love that resides and is in you. And so to the degree that we are invited into that, God, we want to say yes. So I pray in the next moment of silence that if there's any ways in which we've fallen short in our efforts to do so, that you might make those known to us. Also that you might even place the name of someone in our lives. That you may be inviting us to live uh, as a model of what it means to follow you, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, speak, I pray.
our way to the table. Uh, sometimes I have all my things together and sometimes I don't. And today at about six o'clock when we started this recording I realized that I had no bread for communion. So I raided the youth closet and it was either Oreos or Cheez-Its or Doritos. Clearly, the mature choice is Cheez-Its. So that's what I have.
Some of you are waiting for me to say I have Doritos. I know you were. But I guess at one point this was probably flour and it was just made into a Cheez-It instead of bread. So if you could allow me the grace to imagine this as a wafer of sorts, un unleavened bread even. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. So whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So as we make our way to this table, it's important to remember that this is the table of the Lord, not of the church, though many times the church has tried to claim it for itself. In fact, just today I was reading in the newspaper about what the Catholic Church is going to do about Eucharist, which is so fascinating. Um, who they will serve it to or won't serve it to. And I guess it's a good reminder that this is not ours, I would submit. This is, this is Christ's table. He paid for it. So it's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. You who have much faith or you who have a little bit of faith, you who have been here often or not for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because I or my title invites you, but because the Christ, the resurrected one, the one who presides over Eucharist, invites you to come and be fed, to be healed, to be known, to be sent back out into the world as a good gift. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And as you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Friends, there's a lot of things going on in our church. We're gearing up for August 1st. First day back in the building. It's 88 degrees in here right now. I have every confidence it will not be that warm on August 1st. Not because of any historical data, just a premonition. Um, so, August 1st. Until then, we'll see you in the park, Highland Park Pavilion. A couple things you should know about Camp Create. Day 2 is coming on July the 12th. Um, there's a couple more days happening. Evidently, some Yahoo is going to help some older kids learn how to fly fish. That's me, actually. I'm the Yahoo. Uh, and there's also weaving with Alyssa Whetstone, mixed media with Emily Joy. Uh, lots of different things happening. So check the website. Mandy's doing a good job of making that available. Uh, there is an attendance cap. So if you want in on that, make sure you get in on that. So also, uh, there's a beach day the 17th of July. If you don't want to camp on the, that weekend with everybody else, you can join folks at the beach. That's at Rice Creek Chain of Lakes Park. Evidently, there's a $6 permit fee to park your car, but after that, it's fun in the sun, baby. Uh, there is an Enneagram session or seminar coming up July 24th, 10 to 12. You're looking at wings, subtypes, all kinds of things with Jane Berg and Karen Bergstrom. And then last but not least, Discover Awaken is happening. It's today, actually. And um, Lord willing, that'll be in the park after the gathering. Bring your own lunch. So if you're watching this, maybe you can make it. Otherwise, um, see you next time at Discover Awaken. That's for new folks checking out the church. Um, that's all we've got, friends. So um, leave with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen and amen. Grace and peace.